Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. These words are from my grandfather. Happy Remembrance Day, Canada. Chapter 1. Mission Inside Begins. Morton Memoir. Wake up, sir! We're over the target! I heard the dispatching sergeant say. I got to my feet and started to struggle into my parachute. I'd slept the full four hours flying time from Brindisi far to the south on the heel of the Italian peninsula. We were now over the mountains of Piedmont, where the Cavalier Boot fans out to meet the frontiers of France and Switzerland. We were 600 miles from base and 200 miles inside enemy lines. It was 1944 and the end of the war in Europe was a year away. Our Halifax bomber had a Polish air crew, veterans of deadly flight schedules to the partisans of Europe. They moved among us with a quiet efficiency. Their job was to locate a fire plan on the ground, descend to 700 feet, then drop us into the midnight sky, like so many human bombs on target, to the partisan fighters of northern Italy. Rubbing sleep from my eyes, I watched two airmen straining to open the hatch on the floor of the bomber. I was checking the release catch on my parachute when the dispatching sergeant came over to see that my static line was hooked up properly to the aircraft. The line would open my chute when we jumped. "'You're lucky to be able to sleep,' the sergeant said. "'Most men can't sleep on a flight like this.' His tone was respectful, as if my ability to sleep reflected favorably upon my nervous system, as if perhaps I were braver than most men. I did not have the time or inclination to tell him I'd been dosed with pills to fight off a bad case of Italian dysentery, a condition not likely to be helped by parachute drops behind enemy lines. The group that took up drop positions around the jump hatch was an odd lot. In nominal command was Captain Michael Lees, 21. Jesus Christ, 21. A British liaison officer with number one special forces of the famous 8th Army in Italy. His mission was to bring certain distinguished Italian partisan leaders 
safely to Rome. Roberto, about 35, the only one in civilian clothes, was a former Italian fighter pilot. His mission was not known to us. My personal operational partner was Captain Jeffrey Long, a South African war artist assigned to map making and drawing of a pictorial record of our mission. I was the only authentic civilian among us, a Canadian war correspondent for the Toronto Daily Star and, according to the terms of the Geneva Conventions, a non-combatant. In defiance of this convention that set up the ground rules for war, I was armed. Jeff Long and I were 31. My mission was complex. Some 20 years later, it was to be described officially by the British Secretary of State for War in these terms. Mr. Morton's job was to provide the press with an account of patriot activities and sabotage exploits in western Liguria. Liguria is one of the 20 regions of Italy, located immediately south of Piedmont. It borders the Mediterranean Sea to form one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world, the Italian Riviera. And ironically, I myself actually can say one thing in Italian, and it is in Piedmontese, and that is la gavta, ma gavta la nata, which means you have a cork stuck so far up your butt that it looks like poop is coming out of your eyes. I have often wished that my mission had turned out to be as simple as it has since been described by the British War Office. I went in behind the lines and emerged a kind of agent. I went in as a reporter and came out as a kind of soldier. I sometimes wish I had never gone in at all. Here, roughly, is what we said before pushing out of the Halifax bomber in the night sky. Commands were given in Polish and translated to us by the dispatching sergeant. Navigator on intercom. We're just about there. When I flash the red light overhead, drop in sticks of two. Please. Right. Let me know as soon as you see the fires, navigator. I have had a sight on them for several minutes. Six bonfires burning bright. Lees to me. Okay, Paul, we go first. Mike Lees sat with his feet dangling over the hole. I sat behind him sideways to the hole. Navigator. Hold it. There are two fire plans down there. They're about eight miles apart. Lees. Describe them. One of them has got to be right. The seconds ticked by slowly. I dreaded the thought of another long flight home. This was our second try. During the first try, two nights before, an engine had caught fire. Only twenty minutes out, we had turned back to crash land at the Brindisi Airboard. Air Base. <laughs> Jesus. And I, as if I'm not mistaken, also the night before this, when he was given the firearm against the code of the Geneva Convention, I believe he did actually get drunk and shoot up the mess hall, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, my mom says that's true. So there you go. Her dad shot at the mess hall the first night as a reporter. He was given a gun. It's Irish Scots for you. What can we say? Okay. Captain Lees looked grim, unhappy. He said... I don't know about you chaps, but I'm for getting down there. Navigator. One of the fire plans is flashing a light. The other is just bonfires. Lees. That settles it. Let's go. There's a difference between 21 and 31. 
The years make a man more cautious, and any parachutist will tell you it's always wise to know what the terrain is like below. I glanced at Geoffrey Long and Roberto. They looked worried. The bomber started to make its turn. I could feel Mike Lee's tense his body. His eyes stared steadily at the red light overhead. The lights flashed on. He dropped away from me. I swung my legs over the hole and followed him down, down, down. Frightened men don't curse. I think we murmur a prayer. My head missed the speeding fuselage by inches. Then I was blasted out, 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 stiff as a board in the unimpressive but efficient British drop style, my body walking the sky in the slipstream of the departing bomber. My parachute opened. Bless it. I looked skyward first, saw the bomber briefly, then looked down. I was sinking gently at what appeared to be about a thousand feet, too high for a fast, safe descent. In operational drops of this kind, the faster one hits the ground, the less likely one is to be observed by an enemy below. Off to my left was a white, chalk-like cliff. Then a few houses became visible immediately below me. They poked out of what appeared to be an orchard of some kind. I had been briefed on what to expect. Our forces to the south were in wireless communication with our target area. This wasn't it. As I swayed gently downward in a stately saraband, all the ghosts and unreasoning fears of my childhood came back to haunt me. Not the sudden spasmodic bursts of fear that one feels under a bombing or shelling attack, but the quiet, persistent fear one feels in the presence of the unknown. Now, the familiar sensation of the rapidly accelerating rate of descent was beginning to make itself felt. I could now get a better look at the train racing up to meet me. The small forest of trees directly below me demanded my full attention. I started to climb my lines as if to delay the inevitable sickening plunge to earth. I was no longer frightened, not even particularly nervous. It is a curious fact that the rapid removal of one kind of fear dissipates all fear for some time thereafter. If this were not true, far more men would break down in war. If men were frightened, they'd quit fighting. Now, I was just above treetop level. Then I went sweeping through the trees, let go the parachute lines to lighten my weight, and landed. Standing up, I had wafted onto the target like a feather. The wrong target. Fumbling for my Colt forty-five, I threw myself flat on the ground. Out of the night, I heard a plaintive whisper, Tedesco? Tedesco means German in Italian. Why should he think I was German? We were supposed to be dropping to Italian partisans according to a prearranged plan. They should have some idea of our identity. I struggled free of my parachute harness, snapped a bullet into the barrel of my forty-five, and aimed in the general direction of the hidden voice. And thus ends chapter one of Inappropriate Conduct, the mystery of a disgraced war journalist. Uh, I've recorded this so many times and never released it, but finally it being Remembrance Day again. I mean, I, I do this every Remembrance Day, and I've never actually been able to bring myself to release it before, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it, I think, is the fact that um, while it's a great story 
And honestly, what happened to him in his life is so, so atrocious. I mean, egregious on the on a on a governmental level between the UK and Canadian governments. I mean, to blackball someone and destroy their life just for your own political and financial gain is horrible. But what strikes me, what affects me about this is the fact I never got to meet this guy. I didn't, never met him. He was informed of my birth. And a, there's photos of us where I look so much like him. It's, it's crazy, really, isn't it? And uh, what happened to him here, this uh, classified special mission that was canceled halfway through, and disavowed halfway through, which isn't really convenient when you're a war correspondent. Yeah, I mean, it echoes and resonates throughout the rest of your life and affects everyone else's life who you ever get to know and your family and children's life. I think actually the most interesting thing for people to know about this is the fact that the book put out by an amazing and well-known American war correspondent in bang bang man as they're called Don North he concludes the book saying that Paul Morton never had any kids and died without an heir and that book came out like that and if I'm not mistaken uh, it was then that you wrote to him? No. He wrote to you? No, neither. What happened? How did... Imagine you're an amazing, famous war correspondent. You put out your life's work on this man whose story of tragedy and woe and heroism fascinates you, and you conclude that life's work saying that he never had any kids, and then you hear about, oh, he did have a kid, and that kid has other kids, and one of those kids is also a journalist just like him. Well, music journalist, but whatever. Thoughts. So, oh. Because okay. you're, his, you're his daughter. And a book came out that said you were never born. Yeah, sure. And that happened. Um, how I found out about it was my daughter phoned from school. She was doing a family tree as an assignment. She wanted to know some, some details about my father. And so I went online to see if I could find um, some more information about him. And I saw his picture, a picture that I had, a picture of my father on the cover of a book called Inappropriate Conduct. And I was shocked and I read about it and it was Don North having written about my father. So <laughs> I hadn't read the book, of course, I just saw the picture of my dad. Um, imagine Googling to find out more about your family tree and then seeing a book published using a photo of which you have the only original. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is crazy. Anyway, so... I, there was a contact number for Don in the States, and so I phoned him up out of the blue and said, Hi, my name's Joan Morton. You've written a book about my father. I said, I'd like to talk to you about it. And big, long pause on the other end, and he's, You're Paul Morton's daughter? <laughs> I didn't know he had a daughter. He literally just put out his life's work where he concluded he didn't have a daughter. Well, he he was lied to by my uh, by my uncle, my father's brother or half brother. Can't remember if he's a half or a full. Um, he had both. I think people by at by this point of listening 
are aware that it's a complicated situation. Yeah, yeah there was a divorce and the uh, resulting trauma and issues. And my uh, father, my uncle, chose to lie to Don. And say he had no kids. And say he had no kids. To and his biographer, essentially. Yes, he, he just, he lied. So um, Don had no idea. It wouldn't have occurred to him that someone would lie about his brother's family at all. That doesn't make sense. So he Yeah, you don't expect led. someone to lie about something like that, really, in norm, actually, normal life. He actually implied that he'd been, dad had been involved with some some woman up in northern Ontario. But what had really happened was he was a boarder uh, at my grandmother's house. And, of course, my mom lived there. So they met in Fort William. When he couldn't get work, because he was blackballed in uh, Toronto by the newspaper. Toronto Star. Yeah. Um, so he had to go. He went and worked in the bush, something men do a lot, can't work with your mind, go work with your body. So he ended up going north of Toronto to Fort William and boarding at my grandmother's house where he met my mom. He was at that point separated in his marriage and they began a relationship and moved together to Montreal. And your mom was also writing as a journalist in the 50s, wasn't that? Well, my, my mom worked as a journalist. She had yeah. various jobs. In the late 40s and 50s, which is kind of... Well, actually, it would be the mid It'd to late the 40s. 40s, yeah. That's kind of incredible that this guy who had been through this intense career and then had this tragedy happen to you, which we'll explain later, um, meets a woman, a journalist in Canada at that time. I mean, I, I always find that's pretty crazy that Grandma, who, of course, I grew up knowing as a sort of West Van socialite lady. Um, she was a journalist in the 40s, in her 20s. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, that's true. She was writing for newspapers. Um, she didn't have a byline or anything, but she was doing articles. And uh, so they fell in love, and uh, he wasn't separated, so they couldn't get married. But she was a free spirit for those days and followed her heart and they moved to Montreal. And the problem was twofold. One, he'd hurt his back in the landing in the war. So he had some physical problems with being able to do more strenuous work. Even though we just heard he said he landed on his feet, which is shocking. Yeah, but landing on your feet from that height can be a bit jarring on the body. It's sort of funny how... um Haley is now a parachuter almost professionally, eh? Yeah, she's she's not she's she's certified as a skydiver and a base jumper, his granddaughter. Yeah. The one who actually So he was precipitated me finding out about this book. So yes, I don't know the details because we never spoke of it. But uh, because of that and because he was blackballed by the paper he couldn't get work, and uh, but they were in church, they were in Montreal, and they did their own marriage ceremony. There's apparently a bit of a big hill in Montreal, and they went up there alone together at night and did their own private marriage ceremony. Really? And uh, and then my mom got pregnant with me, 
and he couldn't afford to support her, and so she came west to Vancouver to stay with her sister um, for the latter part of her pregnancy. Would this be Auntie Iris? Yeah, it would be. Iris Holmes. Yeah, and she was actually sort of one of the mystics of the family, eh? Yes, she became a bishop in a non-denominational church. She was uh, a deeply spiritual person and very involved in alternate spirituality and very, uh, well, very assertive because, as I say, she she became a bishop with all the regalia and the status and the responsibilities in a non-denominational church. But that is a whole other story. This is, it's, it's interesting, too, because, you know, I think most of us, when we think back to the 40s and 50s, these aren't the sort of stories that pop into our minds as having occurred. I mean, we all know about the Victorian occult milieu, and we know about the 60s and onwards, but people don't often think about what was going on too much in the 50s or 40s. I, I post post you know Hitler's crazy magic stuff and all of. I I don't know much about that. I mean that is what word my group. aunt was doing. There's quite a strong For, spiritual bent in our family. There is well great-grandfather Masons and all that. Uh, for, for some of the younger listeners, do you want to explain what it means by saying that Grandma didn't have a byline? Oh, yes, she didn't have her own column. She didn't have a... She hadn't reached the status where she had her name on the work. She'd be given assignments. She'd write them, but it wouldn't say, by Emily Gage. Yeah, very, I, you said it in a very tactful way, um... What it is is she she wrote without credit. I don't think many people write things without credit these days. Um, I I don't know because newspapers just aren't aren't the uh, center of communication the way they used to be. In those days, that was the way you started. And to get your own byline was a real uh, feather in your cap and what everyone wanted. And uh, my adopted father, he certainly had his own byline. So when my mother came out here and Paul wasn't able to make money because of the being blackballed and not being in excellent health, and uh, so she got a job at the Vancouver News Herald paper and met someone who did have the ability to marry her and support her and a child. She went to work when I was only five weeks old. And uh, she took me back to meet him when I was two, and we had a great time, she says. I don't remember it, but um, he just wasn't able to take on supporting a family. It really devastated him emotionally, and uh, that affected his health as well, to be called a liar and to be reviled by the people he'd been working with for over 10 years and by all his colleagues who, for some reason, chose to believe the slander of the American, of the Canadian and uh, British. UK, British governments, which they did <clears throat> just to further their, uh, their fears of, uh, they felt the partisans were too socialist and they had enormous fear of anything related to socialism. So they disavowed my dad's work and pretended that he had falsified it when they knew he hadn't. And yes. it wasn't a class 
And then it was classified. The British Secret Service classified all of the facts surrounding that assignment and didn't declassify it until the early 1960s. And then it came out, the real story, that he, he was vindicated. That he did, in fact, do all the things yeah. he wrote about. But yeah. but for people's... So what happened, basically, is he was sent on this dangerous career-making mission behind enemy lines to fight the Nazis with the partisan Italians. And then when he came back to Toronto and filed all his stories, they spiked him, which is when a journalist editor puts your stories on the spike and says, you're full of shit. I have proof from the British government that none of this ever happened. You were basically drunk in the hotel the whole time, womanizing, and you never did any of this. But what actually happened was he was sent on the mission. While he was on the mission, the British government was like, oh, you know, the Italian partisans have slight red sympathies, as pretty much everyone who was fighting Mussolini and Hitler had red sympathies in Europe because... You know, the enemy of my enemies, people. my friends. Yeah, They were poor people. And so as a result, he got back after this crazy mission, and they said, oh, it never happened, and he never got to work again a day in his life. Not as a, no. No. No, not as a never. journalist ever, and his career was ruined. His reputation was ruined. And by the time they finally admitted the truth in 19, early 1960s, around 62, uh, he really wasn't able to recover Although he did get uh, a job, he did do public speaking, and uh, he did uh, have a job as a lecturer at uh, an alternative college. It was called something very similar to Rochdale College, and he would give lectures there. You know what's so timely about talking about this now? Is that if there was ever a time where people would understand the significance of government censoring and disavowing media and journalists. <laughs> it's very American right now. It's very global right now. So there was a moment, if I'm remembering this right, where him and his then wife did come out to try to bring you back into their lives. Well, this is not, not a, quite like that. I what, know it's not a good it, story, but I think it should be on. We should, well, people should. It's not quite like that. Similar. He did meet a woman. He told my mom, he said, oh, I'll never marry, after my mom told him that he, she had met a journalist who was, ava- was able to support her and her child and who wanted a family. And since Paul couldn't do that, she decided to accept his proposal, and so she married Peter Madison, who was on the waterfront desk at the Vancouver News Herald. And they did become crazy, sort of rich together. No, they became they were well off, not crazy rich by well, any means. That that waterfront property in West Vancouver it was wasn't was waterfront. No, eh, close enough. It, <laughs> it had was a in West on Van, it. and he made good money, and he did uh, make <sighs> enough to build a place on the Grand Cayman Islands. So yes, he was well off. I, it's so but not crazy wealthy, not like a millionaire. I just told it's so it's so West Van of you though to downplay yeah, that's that. True. That's so West that's Van true. of you, Mom, to be like they weren't that wealthy. They had a place in the Caymans. They had memberships at the clubs. They had a big place with a forest in West Vancouver. If you know anything about Vancouver, West Vancouver, well, oh God. It, so yes. Certainly he made good money and supported his family, and we had those benefits. 
But you have to understand the, the 40s and 50s. And in my family, there wasn't a great deal of trickle down. We weren't spoiled, except that we lived in a decent house and our parents had the means to drive and, you know, move around. And by the time they had bought a place, built a place of their own on Grand Cayman Islands, and I was never invited there. Yeah, yeah, they, they had anything. a place in the Caymans, but you weren't welcome. Well, it wasn't that I wasn't welcome. It's just that <laughs> they only took I was uh, your in sisters? my early 20s, and they, they just simply didn't give things freely to their children. Children were, I used to work for my father starting at a very young age. We had a, you know, um, a chain at the living room table. One person would stuff the envelopes, the other one would address them, the other one would stamp them, and we all participated. So it never really felt like a, a luxurious lifestyle, but then, you know, I didn't remember the poverty I dealt with when I was very young. I was too young to remember my mother's days as a single parent when um, I was looked after by various people while she went to work when I was only five weeks old. So. You know, it's a question of perspective, for sure. So was it before your mom met and married your stepfather, Peter? Adoptive. Adoptive. Was it before or after that that Paul, your actual dad, this guy, and his wife came out and actually offered to buy you? They didn't come. They, they didn't, as far as I know, they didn't come out. They didn't, they come didn't, to, come they didn't out try and buy you for a couple me. hundred grand? Not that I know. Well, that's, I mean, that's, if you heard that, that from I've my mom, that that's from, up to I've you. I've heard but, that. Um, what I all I heard was they were interested in having me provided uh, they had me exclusively, <laughs> and that meant I would never see my mother or family again. Or so half sisters. So my were, mom said you were, no. You were very young then. Very young, and I have no idea when it happened. And they were like, "We will have a what we want her to have a relationship with her dad, but only if it means she never sees her mom again." Yeah, I would be exclusively theirs. Um, That's some kind of and purchase, then isn't it? My, my mother and, uh, well, at that point, my stepfather, he adopted me when I was between eight and nine years of age. So they finalized that arrangement, and I was part of that family. And they didn't have any contact. They had contact with, I don't think this is really of interest to other people, but they did have contact socially with my father and his wife. But they didn't tell me about it. So I didn't have knowledge of it and so, until I was older. And so he wrote these memoirs, these pages of memoirs that got given to this American war journalist, Don North. He wrote this book after decades of research furthering that. The declassified documents came out proving Paul Morton had told the truth about his whole mission and everything. And his career had been ruined simply for political posturing and, and public relations, essentially, right? Exactly, yes. He wrote it uh, when he was getting close to the end of his life. He had a very strange life in that he married a woman who was uh, an executive, so well able to support the two of them, so he didn't need to be, be the primary breadwinner, so he could do his creative writing work and teaching and lecturing and be the minor wage earner but they lived in a penthouse in Toronto because she was a very high-powered executive. Um, and well, I, It's a hard-knock life. Yeah, so uh, she 
contacted me and told me that he had published this. No, I contacted her. Uh, periodically, I would try and get in touch with her to try and get in touch with my dad, and she would not allow me to see or talk to him. Um, but finally, one time she said that he had written this book about his experiences, and she was she wanted me to have a copy. He'd already died at that point, Jeez. and she hadn't told me. Oh, shit. She claimed that she couldn't find our name in the phone book, which was what a completely, I, completely untrue. But she said there was this book that he had dictated to another person to put together for him, and uh, the other person had said, oh, it's too bad there's no other family to to learn about his exploits. And then my stepmom, Jerry, said to him, oh, said to her, oh, well, actually, he has a daughter and and a grandson, but we don't tell him about that. <laughs> so they didn't tell Paul Morton's biographer about his kids and grandkids. They didn't tell him about you. They I didn't tell Paul. They didn't. My granddad wasn't told I existed. That's I thought you, right. I thought he was told I. You no, wrote I told him. his wife. And you, you, I always remember you telling me that he did. No. Oh well, that she changes my whole him. memory of my entire life. <laughs> she wouldn't tell him. <laughs> Talk about reconfiguring my existence right now, live on air. Jesus. Fuck. Yeah, she. Wait, you. I always remember the stories being you t wrote to him, and you had a letter correspondence. You've shown me some letters you and okay, him wrote back and forth. Very different time frame. But I assumed that that was what you were talking about when you said that you had told him about me. It's a whole other time. So he frame. didn't ever know I existed. No, she wouldn't tell him. She wouldn't tell my granddad I was born. That's right, because she yeah. said, "What a gem." She said to me after, "Well, he chat. would have been on a plane out to see him, and I couldn't have that." So. Oh, she couldn't have that. Oh. The, the letters that Dad and I wrote were, it was in the uh, late 60s. Wow. It's a whole other story. Whole My other meeting story. with him and uh, and our communication and what happened. But, but you did meet to him really. once as an adult. Yes, yes. We met and had a wonderful time. And Oh, that's so nice. Uh, and corresponded until his wife put an end to it. And, you know, he let her. So that's on him as well. So. Wow. So the book came out. You found out very recently. It was 2013, 2014. And the author, Don North, who's from whose book I was reading earlier, and I will bookend this podcast with a bit more of his actual writing about the passage from Paul. He actually quite promptly got on a plane with his wife, flew out to Vancouver, met all of us, came to an Irish pub, saw me perform, sat down with me, brought boxes of his books, or you bought boxes of his books or whatever, and met all of us and actually got to see me sing and play and all of that stuff, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, they so came to Vancouver as soon as they were able to once they found out that I was Paul's daughter. They were lovely, lovely people, Don and Deanna North. And Don is a, was, he's now passed, but the brilliant, celebrated, investigative journalist. journalist. Well, in, in fact, even when he was in Vancouver visiting us, he was staying with his 
buddy Red Robinson, the Canadian legend in West Van, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if for all you Canadians out there, if you don't, well, if, if you don't know who Red Robinson is or was or is, Google it. Don't <laughs> Google it. Fuck it. You're not a Canadian, motherfucker. Well, Red Robinson. Generation thing. I'm, I'm looking at you, Kelsey. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, it, it really is phenomenal to me, to the whole, the whole story, to discover it all. I mean, one thing, like, personally, Mom, that, that like, always boggles my mind is is the, the censorship issue. Like, he was censored by a major news organization and blackballed. Well, and, by the government's pressure on the well, news. That, that, that's even the icing on the cake. The fact that it wasn't just a news organization, but the Canadian and British government censor, uh, censoring. Like, I have emails ever since then from Don North with additional information coming out about private meetings held in, in British cabinets about this information and about how they behaved and making sure that it didn't come back to bite them. Like, mm-hmm. I have all these emails. I have emails from him after his meeting with uh, Oliver Stone to do the movie of this. Mm-hmm. And he and I worked together over email for a couple of years after he visited, up until 2018. He, we were emailing. He was sending me the, the screenplay that he was working on. I've, I've been adapting it. And then, in sadly, in... Uh, when I was in Berlin in 2019, 2018, Don passed um, close to my birthday in January, and and that was that. And the screenplay is now solely in my hands, and I've not known what to do with it because I really have a hard time looking at this family history because of everything it has led to repercussion-wise in our lives. It's... See, like, there's so much that this actually means to me. Like, I can see the 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 rivulets of of effect and influence in our lives, and all this stuff. I mean, the parallel between what he went through and the fact that I was working for five years before I met Don North, and the book came out as I was working as a music journalist. Did all this work for five years. That company owed me money, sold itself to Rolling Stone, and Rolling Stone, rather than pay off all the writers like me, who it owed lots of money to, erased all our work from every record of the internet except for a few traces, just deleted us. Like, we never existed. So, like, all the backlinking and everything I ever promoted on myself, years later I found out all those links were dead, and if anyone went to find any of my work, they would find nothing. It made me realize that I looked like a fraud to anyone I ever talked about like my interviews with Metric or Fear Factory or any of these bands that I covered, gone because a company realized it could make more money by just deleting the work of all the people it built itself upon, and this company's Rolling Stone. Like, when I realized these stories had these parallels, I was like, this is something that my listeners are really actually, some of them are interested in, because this is genetic memory or genetic karma in a sense. And I was talking with someone just about this the other day, and, and she's listening, I'm sure. But it is really interesting, because I, I, you know me, I don't like reincarnation or any of that shit. I'm, I'm just not a fan. And I'm not a fan of the idea of genetic karma or spiritual blah, 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 transitioning from parents to kids to grandkids. I, I, I don't like it. I just don't like it. <laughs> You're laughing. Too bad, but, but <laughs> too, too bad, I know, right? I don't like it. it There's doesn't... even more parallels. There's so many parallels. <laughs> well, tell me what. <laughs> uh, the the uh, marital status, divorcing, and 
losing contact with the father and uh, the trauma for Paul. It was very traumatic for him and really uh, people who knew him said it defined him. Paul Morton's losing... His contact... No, his own family. Oh, Because his parents divorced and he was traumatized by it. Some people who knew him, they, they felt he was brilliant and talented and uh, you know he was a very successful journalist for 10 years before the war and uh, yeah from like early 20s to early 30s essentially yeah, yeah. Um, but and he was that, described often as being at uh, operas and balls in Europe and, and being genial and handsome and charming but also troubled and yeah he had a, it's like having a little fault line you know some kids do pull it together really well after divorce, but there is there is a little chink in your armor from that trauma, as anyone who's come through divorce, especially when the parents haven't really rallied around keeping the kids whole. And that happened for my dad, and that happened for you, and it happened for your dad, and then it got passed down. Well, yeah, as for those who don't Very know, sad. my dad isn't in touch with his dad or even his half-brother, Shadow, in San Diego, and he's also not in touch with me. This shit just keeps sort of piling on and carrying on and, and stuff like so, that. And so I'm going to pretend for a minute that all this genetic memory, spiritual stuff is real, okay? Let's pretend it's all real. Sure. And And you, you're a world-famous Canadian astrologer, so... Um, and don't don't grimace. I'm just having fun. I'm just having fun. Plus, everyone who listens I'm to this podcast is insane. Not world fought, All famous. the listeners who listen to this are insane I, people because no one should ever listen to anything I say. <laughs> um, no, but I've worked internationally, but I what's your, not world famous. You're my mom, so of course you're world famous. Yes, so, dear. <laughs> so what's your take on this spiritually? Because you're also a you a graduate of the Golden Dawn. You you not only went through the Golden Dawn, but as as I pointed out to you recently, you got you didn't just do Temple Tehuti all the way through Philosophies. You did your portal initiation with Martin Tebow and his new mentor slash friend Samuel Robinson of Pansofers and Pat Zalewski's protege. So you did your portal. You flew out to Montreal just to do your portal with them because I had closed Tehuti and. By being initiated by Samuel Robinson into Portal, that puts you in the lineage of Pat Zaleski, I believe to Fade Ra Temple in New Zealand, Jack Taylor, and therefore Falcon and Yates and the Stella Matina and original Golden Dawn. So you, uh, you unlike me, have a, a degree of initiation connected to the true original Golden Dawn, whereas I, in fact, do not. Yes, I do. I'm very humble about it, though. You're so humble. I'm very humble. I know. No, I just put that together the other day because people are talking about that stuff. And for some people, that lineage, lineage matters. Lineage is everything. For some people. If you've got it, it's everything. If you don't have it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, what's your read on this astrologically as a spiritual person? My read on what aspect all of it is a great deal. All of this, all of this crap. It's it's so crazy. Like life's so crazy. I think crazy. it's a wonderful topic to think and and uh, meditate on. I think that you know the jury is out as far as what is anything that you could call 
a fact about how our lives work, where they come from, where they're going, and what they're about. Everyone has theories that they find uh, comforting or challenging or reassuring, and it's fascinating. And I mean, at this point in my life, at 71, what I know is I don't know for sure. I have things that I can't explain. I can, I can be doing someone's astrological chart, and I'll see images and visions and scenes <clears throat> of what looked like other lifetimes or dynamics that uh, explain the aspects in a really, uh, in a story-like manner. And I've done past life regressions with people. And if it's not past life, then it's some other aspect of them. And I can't guarantee or confirm for sure, it's not possible, what that means or where it comes from. But I think if something has validity for the experience of the person, then you have to go with that and work with what is real and true for each individual without trying to label whether it's some kind of genetic memory through the families, ancestral, ancestral or past life or uh, you know multiple realities, parallel realities. Lovely, juicy, wonderful thoughts to think about. But, you know, even though people think they know the truth or come across something and feel, oh, this is actually speaks to me, this must be the truth, the older you get, the more you can accept that, well, it may speak to me and it may help answer things, but really, in all honesty, I can't say it's the one true answer. And that's really, I think, the best place to come to is that something speaks to me, it has meaning, it helps me to be a good person, to be the kind of person I want to be and make sense of my life without claiming that you found the one true answer that is true for all people of all times. Sounds like you've been reading my opus, my, my thesis. Either that or being raised by you influenced what I wrote. I would my say book. definitely No, I think, it. I think I think it's less likely that you influenced me over my life to write what I wrote. I think it's more likely that I wrote what I wrote in a vacuum and it has formed you as a human being. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> well, let's see what Don North, the author of Inappropriate Conduct, prefaces about your dad, Paul Morton, and this crazy story. North telling the truth about war. War changes and often harms not only its combatants but also its eyewitnesses. The war correspondents whose job it is to get as close as possible to war report what they see and survive to tell about it, have a unique job. Neither victims nor killers, they risk injury and death and often struggle against those who would censor their truth. It is a frustrating profession and one that can destroy its best and bravest. This is a story of such a war correspondent who volunteered for one of the most dangerous assignments of the Second World War. Paul Morton was a reporter for the prominent Canadian newspaper, the Toronto Daily Star. Note, properly referred to as the Toronto Star, the newspaper adopted this shortened name formally in 1971. On a mission initiated by the British government, alleged to have Prime Minister Winston Churchill's personal approval, Morton, parachuted behind Nazi lines in northern Italy to report on the guerrilla war being fought by Italian partisans against the German occupation. 
Morton not only reported on the partisans' war, but in order to stay alive wound up fighting it as well, pursued by German army units that dwarfed the Italian guerrilla bands. By the time Morton returned to Rome after two months, the British army, which had urged him to take the assignment, refused to distribute his reports to the international press as they originally planned, apparently because of changes in war strategy. Doesn't sound like anything that happens today, (laughs) does it? No. The Toronto Daily Star spiked his stories, and his career was ruined. His editor fired him, declaring his stories were fraudulent and that he had never been behind the lines in northern Italy. The Canadian Army cancelled his accreditation, fuck, based on an incident in the bar of the officer's mess before his mission, in which he fired a couple rounds at the wall from Colt 45. Right, and uh, there's a reason that Geneva... What can you do? What can you do? You're an Irish Scotsman that came over on the Mayflower. Well, According to the Geneva Convention, he shouldn't have had a firearm, but they were sending him to fight Nazis or report on Nazis. Dude, I wouldn't let anyone fucking parachute me into Nazi-occupied area without a gun. Yeah, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that they needed an excuse to discredit him. Yeah. So they chose to take the fire his rather him. immature and he got drunk drunken and behavior. shot up the mess hall. Yeah, it's as one does. something that, yes, exactly. That's just normal behavior this, in the middle of a war. This was when men were men. Men were men. Men were men. They got drunk and they shot things up. Still happening in some parts of the world every Saturday night. I'm convinced that no men shoot anything anymore. There's no violence in the world. Although the Toronto Daily Star published the first of Morton's accounts from behind the lines, his other eight stories, approximately 8,000 words, which in journalism is a lot for you folks, you know, everyone knows that. Okay, but shut up, shut up. What am I doing? I drank too much wine. Were never published by the Toronto Daily Star or the combined Allied press as originally planned. No copies of the articles can now be located and are lost to history. That's fucking, that's what, see, that's what's crazy. That's exactly what Rolling Stone did to five years of my work for Rockstar Weekly. It's fucking crazy, these parallels. And I didn't even know this. No copies of the articles can be located. It remains a mystery why neither the Toronto Daily Star nor the British and Canadian armies did not publish Morton's series and treated him in such a cavalier fashion. However, there are clues which will unfold in these chapters. I've tried to discover the truth about Paul Morton for more than 10 years, ever since my friend Peter Sturzberg, a war correspondent in Italy and a friend of Paul's, told me the story. In many ways, I identify with Paul Morton since... I was born Canadian and am a lifelong journalist with a deep respect for soldiers, prone to drinking too much, and often not very good at communicating with my bosses. Fuck, I miss Don, man. He was, he was a mentor to me for a while. Like Morton, I discovered war close up and, to my regret on occasion, out of fear for my life decided to go armed into a conflict zone. In 1983, I spent two months behind the lines with the leftist guerrillas in El Salvador, escaping with my life and a story for Newsweek, only to have the U.S. Embassy there state that I was a liar for reporting Salvadoran armed massacre of civilians. Of course, civilians never get massacred. 
I've spent most of the last 50 years not only thinking about it, but experiencing the often rocky relationship of governments and armed forces with the press. So yes, Paul Morton's experience strongly resonates with me and made me want to find out why he suffered such an ignominious fate. Morton's Odyssey is an adventure with a cast of fascinating characters played out in the fall of 1944 when the defeat of the German army was still a year away. His story shows the best days of a man's life destroyed by those he trusted, by historical forces beyond his control, and by the classic tragedy of his own failure to combat the enemy inside himself that left him helpless to battle the lies of colleagues. Doesn't sound like anyone we know, does it? Twenty years after his mission, Morton did get the opportunity to tell his story, although not to his own countrymen. Italian historians... (laughs) Go Italy. Italian historians of the war located Morton in Toronto and urged him to write an account of his mission with the partisans. Morton did so, penning a compelling narrative with humor and a keen memory for detail. His memoir was translated and published in Italian in 1979 under the title Missione Inside, Fra i Partigiani del Nord Italia, or Mission Inside, Behind Enemy Lines in North Italy by La Cie Press. It is published here for the first time in English with the permission of Morton's brother, John Morton of Toronto. Inappropriate Conduct is a duet with Morton's memoir and my own reporting from interviews with those who knew him by scouring archives of the Second World War in Italy, Britain, and Canada. At the British Archives in Kew, I located file HJS 91066-6 the British Army's personnel file for Martin. It was sealed and exempt from the Freedom of Information Act until proof of death or the individual's 100th birthday. See, that is sketchy as fuck. Yes, it is. Pardon my mon français. Oh, did Clark write me back? Yeah. Oh, he's brewing me tonight. Oh, he's brewing me tonight and he doesn't work tomorrow. I guess we know what I'm doing after this. (laughs) Okay, go Clark. Sorry, guys. Hang in here with us. You know, you all know. I love that. The one thing I love about this podcast is I've been talking stuff. Stuff is the technical term for it for a while now. And no one seems to get bothered by it. So I'm just going to keep doing it. I know, I know you guys roll your eyes and head when I talk, but some people don't. It's fascinating. Shall we finish this? Where were we? 20 years after his mission, Morton did get the opportunity to tell his story, although not to his own countrymen. Italian historians of the war located Morton in Toronto... Yep, we did that. At the British, we did that too. Fuck me. Oh. 100 years of your... Like, how can they classify a, a reporter's personnel file? It's because they don't want people to know. Tell me, am I crazy? Because no, you, exactly you, you, here's the thing that I clear. don't know. Because I've been studying this for a while, trying to finish the screenplay for two years since Don died, and I have all these emails with Don, but I haven't accessed 
your emails because no matter how much, Mom, I try to hack into your emails and your photo accounts and your audio accounts and your your porn accounts, I've never managed to hack your accounts. So I don't know what you... <laughs> so I don't actually know the correspondence you had with Don, but I do know that he was sending you new information way after this book came out that was actually some updated stuff being released from the British and Canadian governments that show even more increased um, accountability on their part. Like, I mean, they ruined his life, but they ruined... It's like... the, the It's what oh, they do. It's It's so... It's so fucking gross. It makes me just... There's a reason every time I've tried to do this alone, mm-hmm. I've basically ended up in a two-day breakdown. I'm, I'm sure I'm putting on a good face, but it's... That's just because I have no water in my chart. My, my heart's going all crazy and shit. You have tons of water in your chart. Where? Your progressed chart. My progressed? Yeah. I didn't say progressed. You have a Scorpio <laughs> ascendant in your natal chart. Yeah, that's it. You have it. a lot of water. That's all the water I have, just that's ascendant. A lot. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.